Welcome to Ekunaini, a podcast about South African innovators. I'm Jen Warren. And I'm Pam Sykes. And Ekunaini is the Kosa word for corner. In South Africa, the street corner is where people hang out, trade stories, and watch life unfold. And that's exactly what we hope to share with you. So join us to explore what stirs ordinary people to make a difference in their communities. We'll introduce you to some of Cape Town's local heroes who are changing the world with bravery, innovation, ingenuity, and heart. You know, there's certain narratives that aren't true, and the poverty porn narrative is not true. So we need more girls creating platforms that can tell alternative stories. We want to have a cohort of young girls coming out of these schools that are empowered and Afrocentric. And we have an opportunity with the next generation to really talk about what that looks like. Welcome to Ekuneni Street Corner Stories. Episode 5 of Ekuneni finds us at the Isivivana Center, a hub for social justice organizations at the corner of Julius Solo and Mazala Streets in Kailicha. We're speaking with Retabile Mashale Sonibare, the very dynamic founder of the Tope Foundation, which is bringing science, technology, engineering, and maths education, that's STEM for short, STEM education, to preteen girls in Kailicha through an after-school club that combines robotics and coding with health and life skills education. But Retabile tells it best in her own words. My name is Retabile Mashale Sonibare, and I am a slave to the, no, I'm the director of Tope Foundation. <laughs> and Tope is an after-school program for girls and we have a focus on science, technology, engineering and maths. We have a philosophy or we subscribe to the positive deviant model where we try and find people from similar contexts as the girls, particularly young women who've come from challenging backgrounds, but who've somehow managed to beat the odds and use them as our mentors and our volunteers to implement the program so the girls can see that someone like them has managed to sort of transcend the challenges that living in an underserved community like Kailicha has. I've never heard that phrase positive deviant before. Tell me more about positive deviance. <laughs> it's a psychology slash sociology term. And it simply says in every challenging circumstance, there's always that one person who somehow manages to thrive. So it's looking at those unique, resilient attributes and saying what makes these people resilient in the face of adversity. So we look for women who somehow manage to have a challenge in their lives, but have managed to make a success of themselves in that. And then we try and multiply those women so that the girls can see that. Because our vision is to really see young women from underserved communities become professional women who contribute to the economy in a meaningful way. Retabile's own life history has put her in the perfect position to help the girls she works with to dream big dreams. Her own parents spent a lot of time studying and living outside South Africa in the 1980s. Her mother was in Germany and her father in Russia, which gave both them and young Retabile options that weren't available to many of her peers. So I was born and then I was raised sort of the early years by my grandmother because my parents were doing what they were doing. But my mom then came back to South Africa. She got linked to the world of community of South Africa to get into 
early childhood development in that space. And so I got a bursary to go to a ward of school. So from primary school, from grade two, I went to a ward of school. So this is pre-94. So I was one of the first black kids at my school living in Kailija and having to commute to Kenilworth every day and sort of defined who I then became and my understanding of inequality because it was so real. Every single day, you literally, physically, like, cross the railway, this is Kenilworth, this is Kailija. Like, it's, it was so stark. It felt like it wasn't right, and I knew it wasn't right. But as a child, I didn't know what that meant. But there was also that narrative about better being on the other side of the train tracks and how no education here would provide what I needed. Because my parents, I think, realized quite early on that you needed an education. Like Education was a non-negotiable in our household. But then also having a social network in Kailisha and having other young people that went to public schools in the township and having them as friends because you now you have to juggle two sets of friends. I have my well-off friends that I spend Monday to Friday with and then Saturdays I have my other friends. Yeah, it was an interesting journey. But I realized that actually there was work to be done around dismantling that system. And there was work to be done to show that there are examples in Kailicha of excellence. Parents are paying so much money to helicopter their children out of Kailicha because the perception, and it's a historical perception, that quality exists outside of these communities or excellence exists outside of these communities. We need to debunk that. We need to turn it on its head and show that actually that's not true. And we need to be those examples. So when I left matric, I went to UCT. I probably would not have made it to UCT had I not gone to the school that I went to. And then I realized, oh my God, you know, if I'm really good at something, I can get a lot of money from the Dean's List. <laughs> so I need to shine. Um, so I had to figure it out really quickly about like where the money was going to come from and what was I really good at. But then I got my degree and then I tried to look for work. And I got into the NGO world and I thought, God, I'm like I'm not going to be a paper pusher all my life <laughs> with this bachelor's degree. I need to do something else. So then I, I did my honours, I did my master's and I went into a role that allowed me to do that. And then after doing my master's I had to do the PhD because it's like, well why did you do the master's if you don't do the PhD? <laughs> like, and then Torpe Foundation, I mean, so this is obviously where your passion is. Mm. So tell us about that and how that yeah. got started. So I started working in rural development as my first job working with child-aided households, and I realized that a lot of the children were actually girls that were leading homes. So they were being denied an opportunity to get into schooling because they were having to provide for their families. And when I went into public health, I realized that a lot of the public health interventions were focused on girls as being the primary preventative agents for HIV, for teenage pregnancy, for any other kind of sexually transmitted disease. And therefore all the messaging was targeting girls, but it was not targeting boys. I knew I was anxious and I needed a career change because I was getting quite depressed in public health, implementing predefined programs. So we were programming the hell out of young people, but not really sitting down with them to say, what was it what you would like? A lot of the interventions were already predefined with logical frameworks that were donor dependent, it was disempowering to communities and it just perpetuated inequality because it was like, well, people are going to sit in an office and decide on a strategy. So even then working in education, like there was this nagging thing about we're working with high schoolers because the matric pass is so important. 
or they're in sort of grade R. And then there was this gap between grade one and grade seven. No one's really looking at that space. And when they are looking at it, it's very kind of piecemeal. Like we won't talk about career guidance. We won't talk about sexual reproductive health and what it means to access youth-friendly services. I thought, oh, that's strange. That's something that's missing. And we want to look at that from a girl perspective. So in 2012, I had my daughter and I had some time to think really deeply about what my life was going to be, but also realize the urgency that I live in Kailija. My daughter's going to grow up in Kailija. She's probably going to go to a school in Kailija. And these schools are not getting fixed. And she's going to be like me, growing up in the early 90s where I had nothing to do. I would go and sit on the side of the street and watch the boys play soccer. And then I would talk to my friends about books and then we'd get bored and then we'd go sit on the side of the street and watch the boys play soccer. I thought, I don't want that for my child and I don't want that for the next generation of young girls. So I got a couple of friends around and I said, let's think about what we can do because a lot of you have the same story as me and we have an affinity to township communities. So what can we do? Retubile was determined to shape the community around her, to make Kailicha a safer and more supportive place for girls and to create opportunities for girls to thrive. So one of the first things she and her friends did was to explore just how much it takes from how many people to enable one girl from the township to break out of poverty. What does it take to be the first PhD holder in your family? Like, what does it take to be a first-generation graduate? Like, who are the women whose backs supported you to be that first graduate? And we celebrate it, but we also recognize that you didn't do it alone. And our role as women now is to support the next generation of young girls so that they don't have to do what we do, which is to basically create a community around one child and say, we're going to help you get to university. And this is outside of the program. It's just in general about sisterhood and what it means to convene a space that's supportive and caring, but also fosters excellence. Because I think we don't really talk about black excellence enough. And when we do, we always exceptionalize it. It's always like, oh, she's so unique. <laughs> yes, of course she's unique because we're not talking about inequality <laughs> in terms of success stories. It's like, oh, one of our tutors graduated this year. She's the first graduate in her family. She finished matric, first in her family, then got a law degree, first in her family. She's just like breaking glass ceilings left, right and center. But she's ashamed of it because she has to tell the story of my family has been generationally failed by the system, failing themselves because they couldn't afford it. And it took my mom working two jobs, my grandmother working three jobs to be able to support me. It's those things that we don't talk about. It's like, you're great. You've done wonderful stuff. Be in the moment, but also recognize the other stuff. And you need to tell the full story so that it's a full story. It's not just a success story. There's something really interesting in there about shame mm. and what it is that people are ashamed of and what we don't talk about. Because I'm hearing that phrase a lot at the moment, oh, we don't talk about that. Mm. We don't talk about that mm. stuff. How does that play out and where does that come from? Yeah, the we don't talk about narrative is kind of a countrywide I mean, it's probably a global phenomenon, but I think we do it so much better in South Africa. <laughs> We're still romanticizing the rainbow nation and what it means. And that's why it's so uncomfortable to have conversations around decoloniality and what it means to be in higher education and not represented all these years later in a country that's majority black. Um, 
part of the shame is not being able to own the story because we have such struggle envy that you can't say my struggle is important because there are bigger struggles there are people who are dying every day being shot at on the front lines of Sudan or whatever you can't own struggle because somebody else's struggle is always bigger than yours so the everyday responsibilities that you have that really bear down on your soul don't count so against this overwhelming backdrop Retabile did just one small thing she decided to focus on STEM education for girls between grade 5 and grade 7, specifically coding and robotics, and things started to grow very quickly. We went around talking to schools and trying to see if there were any programs focused on STEM. So we started doing coding and then we started doing robotics. And then in 2014, we wanted to really understand what the determinants were for school dropout. We realized a lot of the girls would come into our program, we'd have them for a year, and then we wouldn't see them the following year. And a lot of the issues around school safety, so not feeling safe in schools, not having a space where they can go to after school, and having a Saturday intervention was not enough. So we then changed our offering to a six-day offering. But it was really just an accidental... And now it's your full-time job. Yeah, now it's... <laughs> <laughs> It's taken over my life, but I mean, I always say to the girls, it doesn't feel like a job because I come to be invigorated and to know that you have an army of women who have the same shared vision to support girls no matter what. It's nice to know that you can come into a space and kind of put your armor on and then go and fight with a team that gets it. In connecting that to black excellence, it's this whole sort of larger challenge to, as you've said, to debunk also the media narratives. Mm. There is a huge, if we look at media and, and how it portrays Africa, how it portrays developing countries and how it portrays black women, you know, there's certain narratives that aren't true. The poverty porn narrative is not true. So we need more girls creating platforms that can tell alternative stories. And rewriting those narratives has become Retabile's mission, and the Tope Foundation currently reaches about 400 of Kailich's thousands of girls. In the process, Retabile herself has become one of the successful black South African women she talks about, applying her ingenuity and heart to changing the world around her. So, we asked her the usual question. What makes you an innovator? <laughs> I don't actually think I'm an innovator, funny enough, and it's probably my own imposter syndrome. But I think a lot of the stuff that we do is so no-brainers. It seems like innovation to other people, but it's actually just like, hello. Come on, guys. <laughs> Why don't you get it yet? <laughs> and I think a lot of the stuff that we're doing is not new. I mean, Lego has been doing educational resources for children for decades. It's where it's applied. So for us, innovation is really about doing something interesting in a different setting with different resources, human resources. So like our human capital is, I suppose, our game changer in terms of our success model. But it's also locality. So like who would have thought that an organization like ours would exist in Kailija? Something for us, by us, here, where we live. 
was what makes me an innovator. It was this spirit of innovation that got Retabile recognized for a six-week stint at Rutgers University in the U.S. as a Mandela Washington Fellow. The fellowship is part of the Young African Leaders Initiative, and in our last episode we mentioned that applications for the next round were open. And they're closing soon. So for this episode's Sponsor Reel, I sat down with our friends at the American Corner to find out more. Stay tuned after the break for more from Rathabile. I'm Daniel Weber, coming to you from the American Corner Makerspace. We're getting the word out about the Mandela Washington Fellowship. This is an exciting opportunity for the best and brightest young African leaders to visit the United States for six weeks of training and networking. By the way, young in this case means between the ages of 25 and 35. So if that's you, visit youngafricanleaders.state.gov and tell us how you are making a difference in your community. Applications close on October 11, so don't delay. And now, over to Jen Warren, who recently met up with American diplomat Ellen Massey to find out more. I'm Ellen Massey. I'm the Public Affairs Officer at the U.S. Consulate based in Cape Town. Essentially what we do is put people together to exchange ideas. And we do that by sometimes sending South Africans to the U.S. to do a variety of things, exchange programs and opportunities for them to learn and network and share, I think really importantly, about their own experiences. And also to share projects that we're doing, the programs like Yali Mandela Washington Fellowship and to get the word out. And so as a part of your role, how do your personal interests and passions fit into the work of recruiting some of the young leaders for programs like the Mandela Washington Fellowship, as well as in maintaining those relationships? My educational background, which I've transformed into my career, is intercultural understanding. Basically what that means is putting people together and helping them understand each other. And it's important because, I mean, we're all looking to do the same thing. We're all looking to have a more secure and prosperous world. It helps us all. And so we learn from South Africans and South Africans learn from us, giving people an opportunity to be in the same room and share ideas and hopefully come out of that experience better for it. At Ekaneni, as part of our podcast interviews, we're talking to a lot of inspiring innovators. Mm -hmm. And something that's come up with all of them is the idea and importance of keeping the IP from concept to creation on the continent. What role do you think the Young African Leaders Initiative and this opportunity can play in that? You know, we do not send anybody to the United States that doesn't already have some really spectacular thing that they're doing here on the ground. And when they go to the U.S., they're talking not just with Americans, but also the other people who are on the program. And in the case of the Mandela Washington Fellowship, it's people from across Sub-Saharan Africa. They don't have the same exact problems and challenges, but they have similar ones and they're sharing ideas. And actually, if we put our resources together, maybe we can tackle this challenge in all of these places. So, you know, I think that having this opportunity for people to just be able to stop what they're doing and think, and then actually collaborate with other people who are also stopping to think, that's what this is all about. You know, the sharing among Africans really enhances what people are able to do in terms of creating their own solutions to their own challenges. And that's Africans sharing their own stories. It's a community that people are joining as well. And I see some really strong relationships coming out of these opportunities. 
The learning that happens is one piece of it, but the networking that happens is what tends to be the ongoing piece that takes itself back to Africa. You know, people don't stop that networking. And so as we wrap up, Ellen, do you have any final words or takeaway for our listeners who might be thinking of applying for the fellowship? If you are somebody who's in one of the tracks that we look for, so public management, business and entrepreneurship, and civic engagement, and you think of yourself as a leader or somebody who has already accomplished something that you feel proud of, then you're likely someone who should take a closer look at the program. You know, we want people to be able to say, in a nutshell, here's who I am and what I want to accomplish. And if you do get it, you have a great opportunity to do that thing you're passionate about in a more impactful way at the end of it. You know, go on to yali.state.gov and check it out. It's a very exciting opportunity. So thank you for sharing and thanks for your time. Thanks for yours. Yeah. Appreciate it. Retabile credits the Mandela Washington Fellowship with introducing her to an Africa-wide network of alumni, which is helping her expand the Tope Foundation and start a specialist school. You'll hear more about that a bit later. In the meantime, the journey hasn't always been easy. Retabile has found that committing resources to girls' education, specifically in science and maths, still needs to be justified. My biggest job is defending why girls. There's always the narrative that if we do things for girls, we're excluding boys, and therefore we perpetuate the cycle of violence. No one ever says, well, let's think about this more systemically. Like, boys have that much more opportunities to participate in other things. You were speaking earlier about your frustration working in public health, that all the public health messages were aimed at girls, as if girls were somehow the problem. Well, they are responsible for reproductive health. Yeah. And there's this bizarre contradiction where on the one hand it's your responsibility, on the other hand you don't have the power mm. to negotiate that. It's this double whammy that mm. the girls are struck with. And in schools, girls aren't getting support around STEM, are they? Mm -mm. So you're filling a gap. Mm -hmm. Even in STEM globally, if you look at the stats of women and then particularly black women in STEM, not a lot of them. But also, I think there is an important space that we neglect in the chase to prove that our model works because we can have reach and we're neglecting the fact that we need representation and children need to see people like them doing the things that they're interested in. How did you get the bug for the science, the technology, the coding? Twitter and WordPress. So I started blogging, unsuccessfully so. I thought that I would become a writer, so I started writing for a few of the online platforms. A lot of them used WordPress. And you go in there and you upload your blog, and I thought, how are they doing this? How are people commenting? So I started checking the back end, because on WordPress, you actually have text, and then you have HTML code. So then I started teaching myself how to code. I thought, this is very easy. We can teach this to the girls. And then we got bored of coding and we wanted to do other things. So I reached out to the Cape Town Science Centre and there were a few partners there. So ORT, SA Cape, has been a very big partner of ours. So they helped us start our first robotics club and that's kind of grown and grown and grown and grown. <laughs> but we're building computers now, so we're working with electricity, motherboards, building servers. So we're doing like some interesting stuff. Wait, this is with nine to 12 year olds. Grade five to grade seven. And I love that you're learning alongside them. You know, my assumption was, oh, you must have had a passion for STEM throughout your childhood. No. Yeah, 
the thing about a lot of this stuff is that it's intuitive and it's about logic and being able to execute a project. So it's not... And if you skip a step... It doesn't work. It doesn't work at all, yeah. <laughs> a lot of the models and the systems for teaching basic coding tend to focus a lot on the intrinsic pleasure of doing the math and the logic, which doesn't always, and I want to be careful about generalizing, but I know from my own experience and looking at my daughters and their friends, they're less turned on by the intrinsic glee of the logic than by what can I do with this. Mm. So what have you found that really excites the girls and keeps them engaged even when the coding might get difficult? Everybody works towards a finished product. So they, it's true, they like the product and its application. So for example, that little EVE there, that Mindstorm. Robot. It looks nice like that and they think, oh, well, now we're done. But the moment they can tell it to do something, so they write the code for movement, for sound, it becomes that much more interesting. And I think one of the things we're seeing with coding is that it's only interesting if it, on the, the user end, serves a purpose. It's doing something, yeah. We're big on application because I think it speaks to sort of problem solving mm. and creating solutions. But I always think that it's the skill that they need to learn. It's the kind of logical thinking process that they need to go through. This is just the means to an end mm. process. I love this quote that you're enabling girls to imagine, access, and create the world that they live in. Mm -hmm. That's our school. Can you talk more about that concept? And what does that global world look like where there are more black female engineers, scientists? We would definitely have more responsive strategies. Um, thinking about like cell phones and the power of cell phones. Cell phones are generating data and tracking data all the time. We're not thinking about how to use the power of cell phones and the data that it's creating to create safe hubs for small children, for women, but also to be able to have early detection systems around hotspots. Now imagine if a 12-year-old girl from Kailicha decided that she was going to use already existing technology in our phones to be able to have early detection systems so that communities could become citizens. So this is reminding me of the concept of personal efficacy, mm -hmm. which is that internal belief that something I do can possibly matter in the world. Mm -hmm. And that this is something kids who grow up in very deprived circumstances often lack, is that sense that anything I do can matter, that I can change. Mm -hmm. And to do any kind of design or creative work, you have to have that belief mm -hmm. that your actions matter. Mm -hmm. So how is what you're doing instilling that sense of personal efficacy? I love that definition. I'm going to steal it and ask you who said it. So I Very welcome. Quote it. So I think it's more a byproduct than an intentional, like we go out to build self-efficacy in young children. We, we probably call it resilience and grit. We try and link the individual experience to the systemic bigger picture. So like what it means to be a citizen and how your active citizenry manifests itself or as it manifests itself in STEM. But if we're another partner, it might be something else. And I mean, I guess that's what the role modeling and the representation is important mm. for as well. Yeah. Because this is the fundamental thing of design, right? Mm. Is seeing something in the world and thinking, that could be better, mm -hmm. and I could be the one who makes it better. Yeah, that's definitely design thinking. There are many problems, there are many issues. 
and a lot of them are easy to solve like they're no-brainers but a lot of them are difficult to solve and we need more people thinking about solving those problems the goals we work with come from informal settlements where they're competing for a community tap they don't have toilets so it's like those problems are more bearing on them than they are for people living in this area of Kailicha, for example. Crime is a bigger issue for them. Issues around street lighting is a bigger issue for them because they don't have the infrastructure and the bulk services available to them. The lack of infrastructure or sometimes the neglect of infrastructure becomes the difference between life and death or the difference between raped and not being raped. And then you have what we have, which is a ticking time bomb. And we're seeing it, I think, more and more here in Kalicha. Now, who's going to solve those problems? In the idea of girls' empowerment, they've got the language of empowerment. They have the language of confidence, of efficacy, as we're talking about. And then they get chucked back into the home, into the community, where that's not being reflected. It's not the reality. Um, but how do you reckon with that in terms of building up girls and then the longer journey of actually changing the community around them. And I think it relates to what you're talking about with the school, with not only imagining, because that's the empowerment and the access, but then creating your own Mm. world. Currently in our organization, we have a program called Mama Mentors, and it's our way of extending empowerment into the home. So we asked every girl in our program to nominate a female caregiver to come and have conversations with us. And we talk about a lot of these issues around empowerment, giving girls access, allowing them to speak, but also how parents should parent equally. So if you have a boy child in the house, he should be washing the dishes one of the days of the week. He should be helping with cooking. He should be doing some of the washing. So the burden is not always on the girl to co-parent when you have, for example, an older sibling who is like an 18-year-old boy who sits and watches TV and the 12-year-old is cleaning like a mad woman you know, like cooking for the house, making sure that the washing is done, fetching water, but there's an adult in the house. So we try and have those conversations about what it is to parent in a just way and how to allow girls space. Because our focus is really around childhood, giving girls a childhood because they're denied that. And it's not deliberate. It's not that women go and reinforce patriarchy. It's generational lessons and learned behavior that we have to now reteach and dismantle and so in our little corner of the world that's how we're extending our empowerment message it's one thing to work with the girls in this way but we need to work with the caregivers the mama mentors program is also addressing a deeper problem retabile noticed that women around her were often emotionally disconnected from their children When you're in survival mode, you just don't have the time or emotional and material resources to do some of the softer work of parenting. We're talking about women, parents, who have to travel very long distances to and from work every day, if they're fortunate to have work, and that takes a serious toll. We convene a space where we talk about some of those issues and like, what does it take for you to come home and give your child 15 minutes of your time and have a conversation about how their day was what they experience, what their plans are for the rest of the week. And we deliberate about that because we want to extend our intervention into the home. Because it's one thing to work with children in isolation, but then go into a household where none of the values, none of the work is continued. It's quite difficult. So we've been, for the last four years, having those conversations about 
our own emotional intelligence as women who come home have had nine hours of work, then had to commute long hours on public transport, get home, have to cook, have to do the washing, have to clean your own house after cleaning someone else's house. You don't have the time to bond with your kids. And then on weekends, you're doing your stock fill, your burial society, or you're having to do shopping because you didn't get time during the week to do it. So you can't connect. But there are strategies or tools that we try and teach because we realized that we were doing amazing work with the girls. You have like outspoken, resilient girls. And then they go home and they say, well, my mommy, like... Yeah, it's really striking for me to think that quality time with one's children might be a function of privilege mm. in is. some ways. Yeah. It is, definitely. Mm. Yeah, It's overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. But it's the reality of so many. So we're a drop in the ocean in terms of if we think about poverty and how poverty manifests itself and the gendered nature of poverty and how women bear the brunt of what it means to be economically inactive. You've kind of touched on or circled around what is still, I think, a real issue in Cape Town or in the Western Cape, which is the legacy of apartheid and these systemic divisions between the communities and what young people are able to see, what their parents are doing for work still. Yeah, I think it's one thing to see somebody doing something. It's another thing to have them accessible to you, to be able to have a conversation with you about what it takes. Because I think when you see a success story, you see the success. You don't see the story behind the success. So one of my biggest thing is, if you come and talk to our girls, you have to tell the full story. You can't edit out the gory parts because it's convenient or it doesn't seem to be in line with your success because it's what got you there. I mean, if we think about our own story. So we're a big storytelling organization. We love telling our own stories. Our girls have made more PhD holders in their lifetime than their parents will ever meet. And we always recruit women and we always recruit black women to come and sit and have these conversations with girls. So they are models of excellence, but they're far and sort of very hard to access because we don't really hear enough about them. So you have to find ways around showing girls that the positive peer pressure is the way of the future and like anything else is uncool. Yeah. <laughs> so we try and talk about the Torpe vibe and like what that means and like if you have the Torpe spirit, which is really around servant leadership, showing excellence, modeling excellence, asking for help, helping others and really just teaching kindness to children because I think our communities are so petrified. I mean, everyone is scared and everyone is in survival mode that kindness becomes a byproduct of something, but it's not an intentional life skill that we teach children. It's such an important story to tell about everyday successes and people's journeys to getting to those everyday successes. Parenting isn't about birthing and providing a meal for your child and a roof and clothing and access to education. It's about being a lot more involved. It's about empathy, it's about all the things that are needed to have a holistic and empowered child. And I think, I mean, I've hardly touched on the school because I'm quite excited about it, so I don't know what to say about it without really getting into those bigger details. Okay, so you're starting small and growing. Mm -hmm. Our school's called Molom Shala, which means hello world. Hello world is the first code that you write, but it also talks to sort of another narrative, so the dominance of English and monolingualism and how we think about that in education. And we also want to be able to write technology that speaks to our issues and have a cohort of young girls coming out of these schools that are empowered and Afrocentric. So they're thinking about African solutions to African problems rather than thinking of cloning 
solutions from the West to try and fix Africa's problem. Or going out. Yeah. You can go out, but you must come back. Yeah, come back. <laughs> because there are many issues and they're not going to solve themselves. And we have an opportunity with the next generation to really talk about what that looks like. And we're all in this. We're all doing this for Africa. How can we collaborate and what does that collaboration look like for us? So I'm in the primary school space. We're thinking nationally, but we're also thinking a solution for Africa. So what about a model? Can we replicate it in Zim? Can work in Botswana? Can work in Zambia? Our target is to get to 10 schools in 12 years. We don't know how we're going to do it yet, but <laughs> we've done amazing things with no idea how we're going to do them. We just, this is the roadmap. This is how we're going to do it. The resources will come. Jump and the net will appear. Where's your net, Jen? It's never been there before I jump. I guess that's part of being a creative person, an artist. What about yours? It's constantly being woven. Um, but we haven't crashed yet. So look, we're on episode five already. Whee! That was a very productive cup of coffee we had last year. It, it really was. And you know what the best part has been for me is meeting people I would never have even known about otherwise who are all absolutely amazing. And all so creative, actually creating the world around them. Their passion and drive even comes across in our conversations, just a bright spark in everybody's eyes. No matter who we speak to, we always leave on a total high. That sounds super cheesy. Can we say that? We can say that. We're allowed. It's our podcast. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the pool of people to speak to keeps getting bigger. So we're starting to plan season two roundabout now because eight episodes is not enough. Never. Never. We've learned a lot more than we expected, and we hope it's been the same for you, our listeners. Our anonymous listeners. Yes, we know you're out there. Hello, Johannesburg. Hello, Brighton, Massachusetts. Hello, San Francisco. And Durban and Tallahassee. We know where you are, but we don't know who you are, so we'd love to know more. And seriously, thank you all for listening. We'd love to hear your feedback. So if there's something you really love about the show or something that we could do better, or you have a suggestion for somebody we should interview, please let us know. Yep, you can visit our Facebook page, Equineni Podcast, or email us at equinenipodcast at gmail.com. And there is a website, equineni.com, as well. And if you leave a review on iTunes, it will help more people find us. So that would be awesome. Please review us. Please review us. Please. We can't only post our own reviews. That would be. No, we can't bad. even post our own reviews, Jen. No. <laughs> we can't do that. I did give us five stars, <laughs> that allowed me. <laughs> Equineni is produced by me, Pam Sykes. And me, Jen Warren. We're supported by the U.S. Consulate of Cape Town and the American Corner at the Cape Town Central Library. Special thanks to Nwabisa Mayema and Debbie Matea for moral support. Add music courtesy of Bottled Sounds and Sean Lawler. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Radio Public. Search for Equineni Podcast. Podcast.